All right. Hi, guys. Well, I am so excited to be with you all tonight. Uh, like Isaac said, my name is Sarah Lowry, and yeah, uh, tonight we're going to finish our talk series on the book of Hebrews. Before we get into our study for tonight, though, I'd love to share with you guys a little bit about me. So, um, I'm on staff with Crew. I oversee the women's ministry in Doherty and Park, and I've been with Crew, yeah, <laughs> I've been with Crew for about six years. Um, I graduated from Ball State in 2010, and it was during my time at Ball State that I met my wonderful husband, David, who's also on staff with Crew. Yeah, aw. <laughs> And we love our job. We love getting to work with college students every single day. It's the best gig. Um, so a little bit about personally me. Um, if I had a day to do whatever I wanted, I would probably do things like reading, watching movies, and baking. I have a dog named Rufus who's 13, who I'm convinced is the best dog in the entire world. Oh, and there's one other really important fact you guys are going to need to know about me. I hate running. I think it's the worst. It's horrible. And the reason you guys need to know this about me is because tonight we're going to be studying Hebrews 12, and one of the first examples um, that is used in Hebrews 12 is that of a runner running a race. So as I was studying this passage this week, I kept thinking, man, I wish I had this great example of preparing for a race and working through with endurance the pain of running every single day. But as you now know, I hate running, so I don't have a story like that. <laughs> I actually spent a lot more time avoiding running than actually running. And when I was in middle school, a great example of this is I decided that I was going to join the track team. And I was doing it purely because, like, my friends were doing it. Um, but I was told that I'd be running the mile, and so I needed to work on distance running. I later found out that the mile is pretty much what they put everyone on that has no business being on the track team. But during our first practice of the year, I really quickly found out that being on the track team was a living nightmare, mainly because practice consisted of constantly running. <laughs> horrible. So what did I do? I decided to run the half mile back to my house, watch TV game shows and eat zebra cakes for an hour, and run the half mile back to school just for the end of practice. Yep. This is my dedication to not running. So I don't know why I didn't just quit the track team. Like, in hindsight, it's like, that's really stupid. Um, but while my friends were, were growing in their skill of running, stubborn me was just growing in her ability to do well at Jeopardy. So after my year on the track team, I learned my lesson, and I no longer joined any type of clubs or groups that could possibly cause me to have to run. So while I know that this is a really ridiculous story, um, I actually think that there we're all a little bit more like 12-year-old Sarah Lowry than we'd like to admit. When difficulty arises in school or work or relationships or other commitments, aren't we all tempted to give up and quit? And unfortunately, in the face of difficult circumstances, Christians can be tempted to quit following Jesus and lead easy and comfortable lives. But because Jesus Christ endured the cross, despising its shame, we can endure difficult circumstances with our eyes fixed on him. And we're going to learn a little bit about this tonight. So 
We're concluding our talk series on the book of Hebrews, and we've learned throughout the past six weeks that the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. These Christians have faced persecution and are now being tempted to turn away from Jesus and turn back to their Jewish customs and traditions. The author of Hebrews is writing to these people to argue that Jesus is far superior to the traditions and customs that they are tempted to give their devotion to. And in our passage tonight, Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews explains why Christians should endure their difficult circumstances and continue to follow Jesus. Before we go ahead and get into the passage, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come together and study your word. I pray that you would help us to understand it rightly and apply it to our life rightly. God, would you help us to see that you are far superior than the things that we tend to run to for comfort, and God, that you are worth following, that you are worth enduring in our faith for. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So grab your Bibles if you have yours. We'll be, go ahead and take a look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11 first. And if you don't have your Bible, um, I believe it will be up on the screen for you. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So in this passage, we see two examples of endurance. And like I said before, the first is endurance as if in a race. Now the author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race set before us. And the first thing that I notice about this verse is the phrase with endurance. And it leads me to believe that the race that the author is describing is much more like a marathon than a sprint. The definition of endurance is the capacity to last or withstand unpleasant or difficult process or situation without giving way. 
Now, running a marathon takes sustained effort, commitment, and determination to complete the task. And as such, following Christ takes sustained effort, commitment, and determination. The author of Hebrews once also explains a couple of things that must be done to successfully run the race of the Christian life. First, he says that we must lay aside every weight of sin which keeps you from running the race. Now, the original hearers of this letter would have known that Olympic runners of the time ran completely naked. They didn't run with even an ounce of clothing on. And if you even watch the marathon runners during the Summer Olympics this year, you'll notice that they wore very minimal and lightweight clothing. Why did they do this? It's because they don't want anything to encumber their running. They don't want anything to keep them from running to their full ability. So just as a runner removes anything that hinders his or her ability to run, so the Christian must get rid of the weight and sin which hinders our ability to run with endurance the race set before us. And the author doesn't mention any specific sin here, so I think we can understand this passage to mean that any sin will hinder our ability to endure in following Christ. Also, the author says to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus took on the punishment of the cross with the joy that his sacrifice would accomplish salvation for those that placed their faith in him. The cross that Jesus endured was the most shameful form of capital punishment. It involved both torture, but also public humiliation. Jesus was shamed and ridiculed while on the cross, yet he treated the shame as really insignificant compared to what the cross would accomplish. We must look to Jesus, who suffered with the end in mind, if we're going to have endurance in this life. Jesus is the one who ran the race before us, and we will fail to endure if we remove our eyes from him. So the second example of endurance that the author of Hebrews moves on to is enduring the discipline of a parent. Now this example of being disciplined by a parent may come with various feelings for many of you, and understandably, thinking about parental discipline might make you feel kind of uncomfortable. Some of you have had parents who disciplined as seemed best, but if we're being honest, their best was pretty horrible. You may have had a parent that was really far too heavy-handed in their discipline of you. You may have had a parent that was absent in their discipline of you. But I think it's important for us to understand that the author of Hebrews wants his readers to know that discipline from God is a part of being his beloved children and that a lack of discipline would actually show a disregard for them. You see, God disciplines his children because he's actually a good father. Verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and we are told to endure this discipline because the, the Lord's discipline is always born out of his care for us. The original hearers of Hebrews could easily interpret their persecution as a lack of care from God or an absence of God. But the author is saying nothing could be further from the truth. Not only should we endure discipline from God because he is a good father, 
but also because he's preparing us for righteousness through his discipline. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And just as an earthly parent disciplines their child to prepare them for adulthood, our Heavenly Father disciplines us to produce a positive outcome in our character and in our relationship with Him. I remember a few instances of discipline from my parents when I was growing up. Um, when I was 14, I got the bright idea to sneak out of the house in the middle of the night to hang out with my friends in the neighborhood without my parents' knowledge. Obviously, what happened is one of my friend's parents found out and immediately called my parents to let them know just what I'd been up to. But I remember sitting in the living room and overhearing the conversation as my mom was on the phone with my friend's mom, and I was really certain my life was about to come to a quick halt. And my parents quietly and calmly came into the living room and sat down, and I'll never forget, my dad looked at me very calmly and said, Sarah, what did you do last night? <laughs> like, definitely one of the most terrifying moments of my life that I can recall. So of I was grounded for several months. I had to miss out on lots of fun activities that I was looking forward to, rightly so. Um, but my parents didn't give me these consequences or discipline me because they wanted me to miss out on fun things. They actually wanted to produce character in my life. They wanted me to be trustworthy. They wanted me to be obedient. And guess what? I never snuck out of the house again. And you know, as you endure discipline from the Lord, both discipline brought on by your own sin, but also discipline that comes with circumstances outside of your control. God will use this training in your life to sanctify you and benefit your relationship with him. Now, as we continue reading the rest of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews gives us a couple of instructions as well as a couple of warnings. And I also should mention that the following verses draw from the original hearer's familiarity with the Old Testament. So let's go ahead and continue reading in chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews gives us a few instructions um, at the beginning of this passage. Strive for peace and holiness. Make sure you aren't bitter. Avoid sexual immorality. And then he makes mention to a man named Esau. It would be really easy to just kind of skim right past that and not pay much attention to Esau. But the original hearers of this letter would have known Esau to represent someone who had misplaced values and made an incredibly unwise decision. So who is Esau? In the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, Esau is the firstborn son of Isaac. He also has a brother named Jacob. So we're going to take a quick look at Genesis 25 and read about his story. It'll be up on the screen. So Genesis 25, starting in verse 29. Once, Jacob was cooking stew. Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so we have this guy named Esau. And after being in the field, he comes home hungry. And his brother Jacob is cooking what I can only assume smells like a delicious stew. And Esau decides he has got to have some. Esau desires the stew so much that he is willing to give up his birthright as the firstborn son to get a single meal. We see here that Esau is dramatic. He's short-sighted. He lives for the moment, and he's concerned with his comfort. He's willing to give up something of great value for something as valueless as a meal. Esau also misses out on what his father had planned for him because he did not value his inheritance. The firstborn son was actually entitled to a double portion of his father's inheritance. And Esau gave this up because he valued the wrong thing. So when the author of Hebrews says, don't bring up, or don't be like Esau, when he brings up Esau in this letter, it is a clear warning to these Christians to not quit following Jesus because of their momentary circumstances. Jesus doesn't promise that our lives will be easy or comfortable, but the things that he does promise make difficult and uncomfortable lives worth it. And after the example of Esau, we now come to a comparison of two mountains. And based on the descriptions of these two mountains, the original audience of the letter would have understood the author to be comparing Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. So we're going to look at these two mountains and compare them. So Mount Sinai is where the wandering Israelites encounter God from the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. When the Israelites come to this mountain, it's a terrifying experience. Hebrews describes this encounter with God on Mount Sinai using phrases like 
blazing fire, darkness, gloom, loud noises. Even Moses said of the encounter, I tremble with fear. And now the author contrasts Mount Sinai with the hopeful picture of Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is often written about in biblical literature to represent the dwelling place of God. And what are some of the phrases used to describe this mountain? The city of the living God, where innumerable angels gather. Here the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. Here we find Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, there's stark difference in the description of Mount Zionai and the description of Mount is. It's very different than the description of Mount Zion. The description of Mount Zion communicates warmth, openness, acceptance, and relationship. While the description of Mount Sinai is incredibly fearful, the description of Mount Zion is incredibly hopeful. Now, you may be wondering why is the author of Hebrews even comparing these two mountains? Um, so it has been mentioned throughout the last six weeks of our talk series that the people of he that Hebrews was written to were being tempted to revert back to their old way of living with their comfortable Jewish traditions and customs. But here we see the author of Hebrews essentially saying, you want the Old Testament way of doing things? This is what encountering God looked like in the Old Testament. It was terrifying. But look what you have available to you through Christ. Look at the hope of Mount Zion. Now, like Eric mentioned during the second week of our talk series, I really doubt that many of you are being tempted to turn away from Jesus and turn back to a life of Jewish customs and traditions. But I, I think we probably have more in common with the people that Hebrews was written to than we think. These Christians are reverting back to Jewish traditions because they're comfortable and familiar. And I ask you, are you ever tempted to turn away from Jesus because following him requires you to be uncomfortable? Are you ever tempted to go back to the way that you lived before you were a Christian because it seems easier? Do difficult circumstances cause you to question your allegiance to Christ? I think that the author of Hebrews wants his audience to understand that old and comfortable ways of doing things might seem like a great solution, they're actually hopeless. Are we good? Great. And I love how the author of Hebrews finishes his comparison of these two mountains with verse 24. He says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And here we, we find yet another reference to the Old Testament, the story of Abel. Now, Abel was the son of Adam and Eve, and he had a brother named Cain. Cain murdered his brother, and this is actually the first murder that we see in the history of humanity. And Hebrews says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was murdered by Cain, and therefore his blood cries out to God for judgment. Abel's blood proclaims the guilt and the shame of sin. But Christ's blood, on the other hand, 
It's won our forgiveness. Christ's blood cries out, you are no longer guilty. And I think Jen Wilkin does a great job at describing what is meant by these verses when she says, the blood of Abel exposes the horror of sin, but the blood of Christ covers the horror of sin. Now, you may be wondering, how do all of these Old Testament references and examples of endurance fit together? What does this passage of scripture have to do with me? Well, we see in the example of the runner that we must combat sin in our lives that weighs us down and holds us back from our relationship with Christ. We are to understand that this can only be done as we fix our eyes on Jesus who ran this race before us. Guys, do you ever feel like the sin that you've recognized in your life is too much to combat? Maybe it's pride, lust, jealousy, anger, gossip. Maybe it's even spiritual apathy that you've recognized in your life. Are you tempted to give up and quit following Jesus because throwing off the sin that weighs you down is too overwhelming? Does the pleasure of sin make you wonder if it's really worth it to follow Christ? And we see in the example of parental discipline that we have a good heavenly father who uses painful circumstances, trials, and consequences for a purpose in our lives. We are to understand that the discipline of the Lord is not an indication that God is absent but rather that he is near and loving. So do the consequences of sin or the pain of living in a fallen world, do they cause you to accuse God of not loving you? Do difficult circumstances lead you to wonder if God is actually absent in your life? We see in the example of Esau, the pain and regret of someone who chooses to sacrifice something of great value for something of very little value. We are to understand that momentary satisfaction will never, ever be worth turning away from Jesus. Are you tempted to give up walking with Jesus because it would allow you temporary comfort or satisfaction? Do you give too much value to the temporary things of this world? Finally, we see the comparison of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, that what seems comfortable and familiar going back to living without Jesus is actually only hopeless. But we are reminded that we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to a place where Jesus welcomes us, redeems us, and promises eternal life with him to us. So do you sometimes wonder if life would be easier if you went back to the way that you used to live? Do you cling to the familiarity of your past rather than the hope of life in Christ? From friends, we're going to be tempted to turn away from Jesus. Honestly, you're probably fooling yourself if you, did, if you can't say yes to one of the questions that I asked. I'm pretty sure I can say yes to all of them. We will be tempted to turn away by sin, comfort, and fear. But remember that enduring with Christ 
it's worth it. And let me tell you why it's worth it. It is worth it because Jesus Christ has made a way for you to have a relationship with God. He humbly came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and then died a sacrificial death for you and for me. The eternal wrath that we deserve for our sin was removed from us and placed on Jesus. We were declared not guilty. Not only that, but we received Christ's righteous standing before God. And now, God has promised to be near to us and make us more like his perfect son, Jesus, until we go to be with him for eternity. He has not promised that this will be easy, but he has told us that this will be worth it. This is the reason that throughout the entire book of Hebrews that we've been studying, the author is declaring Jesus is better. And now he's finishing his letter by saying that following Jesus is worth it. My hope is that when the day comes that you see Jesus face to face, when your faith will become sight, the race that you've run is completed. The endurance that you've had is shown. I, I, I pray that it is all worth it. And I think because Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, we can endure difficult circumstances with our eyes fixed on him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that your blood speaks about our word, that it declares us not guilty. God, would you help us to count the cost of following you? When we are surely tempted sometime to turn away, Lord, would we see you as worth it? Would we see enduring in our faith as worth it. God, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.